the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Bob Zadek Show, your home for insight and in-depth analysis. Listen live right here or join us at BobZadek.com. That's Z-A-D-E-K, BobZadek.com. The Bob Zadek Show. Ideas, not attitude. Information, not talking points. Hello, everyone. I'm Bob Zadek, host of the country's longest-running libertarian broadcast, nationally streamed at 8 a.m. Pacific Time Sundays on the 860 AM app. My podcast contains more than a decade of historical issues. Uh, BobZadek.com offers resource material, book lists, and other topical podcasts and more. We strive to offer in-depth content on social, political, and economic issues that really matter, and always with the ideal guest. Accessible and entertaining. Our rule, ideas, not attitude. The essence of democracy is that voters pick their leaders. In America today, our leaders get to pick their voters as a result of the pernicious practice of gerrymandering. Gerrymandering has a fascinating history and has become a major threat to majority rule. Even worse, it seems to defy any solution, or does it? Nick Seabrook, the author of Just Published, One Person, One Vote, has agreed to join us to discuss the history, the problems, and the solution, yes, the solution, for gerrymandering before it is too late. Nick is a professor of political science and public administration at the University of North Florida. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bob. It's great to be here. Okay, Nick, gerrymandering. Now, we'll discuss in the course of discussing the history where this funny-sounding word came from. It itself has a rich history. But tell us first what gerrymandering is and how it takes place And in doing so, tell us in broad strokes, we'll drill down, of course, but in broad broad strokes, is it a threat to democracy, a threat to majority rule that I suggested it was in my opening? So gerrymandering refers to the practice where the people who are responsible for drawing the districts in which candidates will run in which campaigns will be conducted, in which voters will elect their representatives in government, manipulate the drawing and the boundaries of those districts in order to achieve their preferred political outcome. Often, not surprisingly, their preferred political outcome is that they themselves get reelected along with their cronies in the legislature. But gerrymandering is also often used by the party that is in power to keep their majority, to guarantee that however the people end up voting in subsequent elections, whether it's for them or against them, they get to stay in power. They get to continue to implement their policy agenda without having to worry about whether that agenda is popular with the constituents that they are supposed to represent. Now, Nick, as to Nick, before we get any further, one point I want to make sure our audience understands. You use the phrase districts. Now, Help us understand the purpose in the mechanics of democracy, the purpose of districts. I will start off the conversation by suggesting the theoretical purpose of districts is so that a representative, number one, knows who he or she is representing, 
and so that uh, we get voters or we get representatives representing relatively small units of society so that the specific uh, goals, the the wishes of a small segment can be represented in Congress. It's designed to make sure that each segment has their person in office so that the representative knows what his electorate or her electorate expects of them, and the electorate can operate as one to pick the right representative. So I think it's fair to say that the whole concept of districts is that to give a vote more meaning. Is that a reasonable starting point? We'll see how the concept of districts does the opposite. But are we starting from the right place? Yeah, I think that's a very good way to think about it. There are essentially two ways that you can structure a representative democracy where the people have a voice in who represents them in government. You can have some kind of proportional representation system where instead of voting for a specific candidate, you're voting for a political party whose agenda you presumably support. And based on the results of the election, a certain number of representatives from that party, and usually they'll have a list that's prepared ahead of the election. However many seats they win, the first X names on that list become members of the legislature. But as you point out, in such a system, there's no fundamental connection between you and your community and your neighborhood and the identity of the person who is representing your interests in government, which is why a lot of countries, including the United States, use districts as a mechanism for forging a greater link between politicians and their voters. So you divide the jurisdiction into a certain number of discrete geographical units corresponding to voters who have a shared identity, who live in a common community, who have uh, a consensus of, of interest uh, and opinions. And the job of that elected representative is to serve their constituents, is to pay attention to what the people they represent would like to happen and to vote accordingly in the legislature. And a lot of the anti-democratic effects of gerrymandering stem from the fact that it either disrupts or sometimes severs that link between elected representatives and the people who they are supposed to represent. Okay, that's a great place to start, Nick, because now we have already learned that it districts as a as a thing, as a concept, are designed so that the there is that you said it perfectly, there is a connection between the elected official and those who elected him. The elected official knows what the people who ex, who elected him expect of him or her based upon the geography, where they live their demographics and the like, a wonderful place to start. So I guess we would have imagined that going back to when districts are first drawn, the first you have the state of New York and somebody says, let's make it into districts. You quite naturally looked for natural boundaries and you looked for commonality of the ethnicity, perhaps economic status, cities as a unit, and you tried to combine people who had something in common into a district. Was that like in the pure sense of the word? It never happened, but in the as a starting point, when they sit down with a feather with a point on it and some ink, and they start to draw stuff on a map. They're trying to make districts that have a lot in common. The people in the district had a lot in common. Is that how districts 
would have started if, in Adam's words, if all men were, in fact, angels? Yes, I think that is kind of the platonic ideal of how a district-based system of political representation is supposed to function. Unfortunately, as long as there have been districts used for elections, and in the book, I trace the origins of gerrymandering all the way back to before the United States, back into the mists of English political history, to the creation of the Parliament of England after the the Magna Carta. And the Magna Carta, of course, was... um, Uh, a negotiated settlement between the British monarchy and uh, the groups who had attempted to overthrow it in order to provide some kind of modicum of check and democratic representation into the British system. Um, But what it turned out to be is kind of a veneer of democracy that was grafted onto a system that still allowed the aristocracy and the elites to dictate policy and politics. And they did so by configuring the districts in such a way that they could keep control of the levers of power. And the the earliest manifestations of something that kind of looks a lot like modern gerrymandering is in this British tradition of the so-called rotten borough, uh, which fairly quickly came about as soon as districts started to be used in British politics, where the district would be configured in such a way that it included uh, a very small number of inhabitants. And the districts were, in some cases, sufficiently small, less than a dozen voters, that the landowners, the aristocrats, were able to use bribery and patronage to uh, essentially bribe their constituents into electing candidates of their choice. So while this has kind of been the ideal of a district-based system, uh, I would certainly say that as long as we have had districts, we have had those in power manipulating districts in order to to keep that power. That's kind of been uh, something that has occurred all the way back throughout U.S. history, back into British history. Um, It would be nice if we could move closer towards the kind of connection between politicians and their constituencies. Uh, But gerrymandering has always been the uh, uh, the tool by which politicians try to push back against those those demographic checks and democratic checks. Our founders certainly studied with a passion, with diligence, with intensity. They studied the political history of the world as they sat down to create the foundation, the two by fours of our country. They knew British history quite well. And they, notwithstanding that, notwithstanding the rotten borough system that developed in England, which they had to have been aware of, of course, they designed a system of districts which was susceptible to the same, I'll say corruption, but corruption is perhaps too strong. It's gaming the system is better because corruption doesn't really nail it. So we'll say gaming the system. They were aware of the ability of those who aspire to stay in office of being able to game the system. Did they attempt to draft away, whether in the Constitution in statutes or in behavior, any of those evils, or do they just assume it came with the product of democracy? I think they did take steps to try and address some of the problems that they had identified in the British system and the British parliament. But the problem with gerrymandering is that it's kind of a, a many-headed monster. And as soon as you cut one of those heads off, immediately, because politicians are strategic uh, and they can come up with creative solutions to these problems, immediately another head pops up 
uh, and you're kind of playing whack-a-mole with whatever the latest technique that's being used to gerrymander and to manipulate districts. There were a couple of things that the framers did in the Constitution, most notably was the allocation of seats in the House of Representatives between states on the basis of population, guaranteed to ensure that uh, representation in Congress would be based not on, uh, on, on patronage necessarily or on uh, the kind of rotten borough type system from, from the UK, but a system where each state would receive a number of seats that was proportional to the number of people who, who lived there. There was also early legislation passed by Congress, which said that, um, that these members of Congress had to be elected from districts and that these districts, instead of being drawn in the rotten borough style, should be configured so that they had roughly equal numbers of inhabitants. Um, but that then kind of led to the early gerrymandering that we saw in the wake of the Constitution, most famously the example from which the practice uh, uh, gained its name uh, from the governor of Massachusetts, Elbridge Gerry, who in 1812, uh, allegedly, and uh, there was uh, a lot more to this story that I discovered when I was researching the book uh, than uh, I had anticipated. But the, the kind of the common origin story of gerrymandering is that this governor of Massachusetts, Elbridge Gerry, uh, was um, attempting to consolidate his own power over the state. He was worried uh, about the Federalists in the state Senate and the fact that they were thwarting his legislative agenda. And so he drew the boundaries of the state Senate districts in Essex County in order to ensure that the maximum number of Democratic Republican candidates would be elected. And he did so not by manipulating the populations of the districts and placing a lot more people in this one uh, and a lot fewer people in that one. He did so by uh, instead manipulating who lived in particular districts. And he found that by packing as many Federalists as possible into a single district in Essex County, where they represented an overwhelming majority of the population, that would allow his political party, the Democratic Republicans, to win all of the other districts in the area. Uh, and that is one of the most common techniques in gerrymandering known as packing, where you reduce the influence of your opponents by cramming them together into as few districts as possible, where they make up massive supermajorities, and that then allows you to win the rest of the seats by smaller majorities. So uh, I would say that yes, the framers did uh, try to create a system that would not be as susceptible to the same kinds of manipulations that were, president, uh, that were present in the British system. But in so doing, they opened the door to a different kind of gerrymandering, one that can operate even when the populations of districts are approximately equal. There is a gerrymandering issue that I don't believe you discussed in your book. Um, maybe none of your reviewers have caught you. Um, but I'll put it to you now. Um, the name of the governor of Massachusetts is Eldridge Gary. Um, he was an interesting fellow. He was one of the three representatives in the Continental Congress who refused to sign the Constitution. He didn't like it. There were, th there were three. That's not my point. That's just a, a, side, a footnote. My point is his name is Eldridge Gary. Now, the, the process we're talking about is called gerrymandering. Shouldn't it be gerrymandering? Um, 
Um, and please, and I'm not going to ask you to explain why everybody reads that word as gerrymandering, even though the guy's name is Gary and not Jerry. But that's a question which is 100% rhetorical. Your next book, maybe you can discuss that. But more, and tell us about the mandering. It's just an interesting story. The the word invented in shortly around 1812 by, I believe, a reporter, a newspaper reporter at the time. But why the mandering in gerrymandering? Well, on the question of the pronunciation, uh, this was actually something that I looked into for the book, um, because not just the, the term gerrymandering, but indeed Elbridge Gary's last name is something that is often mispronounced by people. And when the, the term was first coined, it was in fact pronounced gerrymandering. And so I looked back to see if, it, if I could find any historical references to the, the pronunciation of, of the word, which is obviously difficult to do because this was an era where um, we don't have recordings of people pronouncing things. But I did find an obscure reference in the transcripts of the Indiana State Constitutional Convention from the mid-19th century. And there was a reference by one of the delegates while they were considering a proposed amendment that would have banned gerrymandering in the state of Indiana as part of their constitution. Uh, and one of the delegates uh, during those deliberations uh, turns to one of his, his opponents on the other side of the aisle and says, uh, you're constantly gerrymandering the state or gerrymandering, as I maintain, it should be pronounced, the G being soft. And that was the earliest reference I could find to someone preferring the gerrymandering pronunciation oh over the original gerrymandering. You're my <laughs> idol. Now, tell us about the mandering. So the mandering part of the word stems from a famous cartoon that was published in a newspaper called the Boston Gazette in 1812. So immediately after Governor Gary unveiled his new state Senate map and the legislature started considering it, it was ridiculed by his political opponents in the tabloids as being kind of a, a naked and transparent power grab. And as the story goes, uh, an editor from the uh, Boston Gazette uh, put a, a map of the districts up on his wall um, and uh, drew a salamander shape on one particular district that kind of snakes around the border of Essex County. This was the district into which his Federalist foes had been packed in order to reduce their political influence. Um, and uh, one of the uh, one of his associates is supposed to have remarked, uh, well, it, it looks like a, a salamander. And he said, well, better say a, a gerrymander. And that was the origin of the term uh, and the cartoon that was published in the newspaper the next day depicting this district as uh, this somewhat sad looking salamander. And the portmanteau of Gary and salamander, which gives us gerrymander uh, kind of became a, uh, something of a phenomenon in 1812. The cartoon, uh, which had run in the Boston Gazette, was reprinted in more than 80 different newspapers across the country uh, in the six months following this original incident uh, in Massachusetts and uh, kind of went viral to the extent that so something uh, could be said to do so in, in 1812. It was the trending topic uh, of the political debates of the time. And within a year um, in Maryland, the politicians there were being accused by their own local newspaper of, ger of gerrymandering, of uh, manipulating the districts in the true gerrymander style. So it was something that very, very quickly caught on. 
uh, and uh, came to be referenced not just in Massachusetts, but within a year in other states as well. Now, uh, fast forward to more contemporary times. We have now a two-party system. Uh, Each party has two goals, to retain retain political power to the extent that they have it, and they retain political power by having more members of their representative bodies, I'll say the House and the Senate, having more of their people in than the other party's team. Therefore, it is a... And since we have a district election system... You have if you have to you have to win the most districts, not the most votes statewide. It's not a statewide ballot. It's a district by district ballot. Therefore, if you are represent if you represent a minority of the people, but a majority of the districts, it's your state and not the other guy's state. So tell us about how the parties in contemporary times, how it's decided who designs the districts, how often they are designed and redesigned, and how do states retain either their permanent red color or their permanent blue color as a direct result of gerrymandering? So in the book, I I kind of distinguish between historical gerrymandering, which was something that that certainly happened, um, but it didn't happen all the time. It was something that politicians did infrequently and not especially effectively. The gerrymander from Massachusetts um, basically worked for one election And then the Democratic Republicans immediately lost their majority in the next election, and the map that they had created was was swiftly repealed. And this is something that recurs frequently in the historical gerrymanders that I analyze in the book, that they were not especially effective, largely because the tools that they were using to create them were fairly fairly blunt and fairly uh, uh, fairly ineffective. Um, you could use census data certainly, but these were times when districts were drawn using using pen and paper or, or quill and parchment, and you're kind of patching together districts from these reams of, of census statistics and making your best guess about how those districts might vote in the future. Uh, I distinguish those types of gerrymanders from what I call in the book the modern era of gerrymandering, which began in the 1960s with a series of Supreme Court decisions that established the constitutional principle of one person, one vote, which is, of course, what the book is is named after. Um, and what those what those uh, Supreme Court decisions uh, required was that all 50 states, after every census, have to redraw all of their districts at every level of government, because those decisions require that those districts have to have almost precisely equal populations in order for everyone's vote to count the same. And that development was followed fairly soon thereafter in the 1970s and the 1980s by the first computer software programs that could be used to draw districts much more efficiently and quickly and effectively than had been possible before. Uh, And of course, since then, those tools have only become more sophisticated. The the politicians of today have access to reams of incredibly granular data on the voting public and exactly where they live and their preferences and their histories. But they also have access to powerful software that is able to simulate how districts will perform 
in future elections. And it's largely because of those tools that gerrymandering today is a very different beast than the kinds of gerrymanders we saw back in in 1812 Massachusetts. They can be fine-tuned and tinkered with in such a way that they don't just allow a party to keep its majority for one or sometimes two elections. They can be figured in such a way that they're robust throughout sometimes an entire decade. And you can have situations, as you say, where a party loses the popular vote overall by a fairly significant amount and is able to maintain its majority because that was something that they had planned for. This was one of the conceivable eventualities that they had anticipated and that they had fine-tuned their gerrymander to be robust in the face of uh, all, all variety of plausible future scenarios. Uh, and that is the state of things as I see it today. Um, and that's the reason why I wrote the book, because I think we're at a crossroads where gerrymandering has become a tool that is effective enough that it threatens not just the fairness of democracy, but also whether we can meaningfully say that uh, a number of states are ever are even really democratic anymore. So doesn't that mean once given the state of the art of gerrymandering, that once a party has designed districts that assure their continued success, it's impossible for them to lose that success because once they're in control, there's no way the other party can gain statewide control. The party may be able to flip a district now and again, but if we say the Democratic Party is in control of Illinois and they have they continue with that power to draw the districts every 10 years, it's impossible for them to for Illinois to ever become Republican unless the population shift was so profound that there simply weren't enough Democrats to get 51% of enough districts. So it's kind of permanent, absent some external cure. It can't be cured by the operation of the Democratic, air quotes, process alone. It'll just never happen. So that brings us, so we have a situation that cannot be fixed in the ballot box once given the software. So whatever the status quo was when the software was refined, that got baked in, or am I exaggerating, forever absent some extra democratic solution, as in the courts, or we'll get to the solutions in a moment. But am I correct so far, or am I overstating it? I certainly think that there are some places where that is true. Um, you mentioned Illinois. The state of Wisconsin uh, is another good example. My home state of Florida is another one. And what's notable about places like Florida and Wisconsin is that these are not heavily Republican or heavily Democratic states, like somewhere like uh, like Illinois or New York or California on the Democratic side or uh, some of the red states that you find on on the other side. These are these are purple states. These are states that have been competitive at the national level, have voted for both Republicans and Democrats, for president, for Senate, for governor. And yet the districts in their state legislatures have been configured in such a way that, as you say, absent a shock to the system, it's essentially impossible without seeing the kind of landslide popular vote that we really don't see anymore in American politics in this era where things are so polarized between Republicans and and Democrats. It will take something like the opposition party's candidate winning the election and being governor at the time of the next redistricting so that they might be in a position to veto the map that the legislature creates to try and roll back that gerrymander for a second decade. 
Um, it may be that the state Supreme Court uh, exercises checks and balances over the legislature and maybe strikes down an extreme partisan gerrymander as a violation of the state constitution. We saw that happen, for instance, in New York, where the Democrats in the legislature tried to gerrymander New York's uh, congressional districts to ensure that they would win the vast majority of those seats. And the New York judiciary fought back and struck down that plan and replaced it with a new map that was considerably more fair. But those, those external shocks uh, don't always happen. Um, you don't always get uh, a, a governor elected from the opposition at the time of gerrymandering who can exercise a check. You don't always have a state Supreme Court that is willing to exercise judicial review. You don't always have the option of citizens putting initiatives on the ballot to try and reform the system, as happened in Michigan. And for states like Wisconsin, that is kind of my concern, that um, that Gerrymandering is something that can be used to effectively install a political party into kind of permanent single party rule in the legislature. And once that happens, absent one of those external shocks, it's extremely difficult to break that control uh, when the uh, the uh, the, the, the problem is the subversion of democracy. Uh, you can't vote your way out of that problem. We have in this country, we have experimented with getting politicians out of the political process when about a decade or so, two decades ago in the House of Representatives, they knew they had too many military bases and costing too much money, but no congressman who wanted to get reelected could ever vote to close a base in his or her district. So they, but they had to close districts. So they appointed an independent commission and Congress by statute said, we agree to be bound up or down by whatever the commission does. And the commission closed districts. Congress voted. They achieved the result by doing just what Nick had pointed out. Get politicians out of the political process and you succeed. So we have have a successful history of doing that in this country, which gives politicians political cover because they're voting for a bill in total that closes bases and saves money so they can't be criticized, but they didn't specifically agree to close a base in their district. It was a pretty interesting solution, and it worked perfectly given the goals. Now, Nick, a question that I can't really answer for myself, assuming there was an independent commission and they were told to redesign districts, what would be the test or what would be the standard by which they would design a district? Would they ignore everything and just do geometry and just draw a lot of hexagons in a, in a state and call it a day with the right number of people? If you wanted to do it the right way, air quotes, what would be your two or three requirements for what makes a district properly drawn? Well, this, I think, uh, brings us quite nicely back to the kinds of first principles that we began this discussion with, because when you're kind of started, starting from scratch in that way, you have the opportunity to emphasize the drawing of districts that do what districts are supposed to be. And I think the best way to approach this is when you have this commission and you're deciding what kinds of instructions you want to give to it, what types of things that you want it to emphasize uh, or de-emphasize is to say, when you're going about this, pay no attention to where the incumbents live. Pay no attention to where the district lines may have been gerrymandered to, uh, to exist before. Pay no attention to the partisanship of the people that you're drawing into one place or another. 
ask the people in these places what their community looks like. Ask the people who live in these cities what the neighborhoods are, and then draw districts that group together citizens and neighborhoods and communities that have shared interests, that have a shared culture, whatever variables you're going to uh, include there. I think part of the problem is that we've kind of become uh, entrenched in this sort of churning system where every 10 years we tinker with the districts here in order to achieve this political goal. We tinker with the districts over here in order to make sure that this incumbent gets reelected. And over time, those districts get further and further away from the underlying communities that they are supposed to be there to represent. So I think you wipe the slate clean. And I think you say to this independent commission, don't pay attention to politics whatsoever. We're going to have hearings. We're going to hear from members of these communities, and they're going to tell us what the interests are that need to be represented. They're going to tell us what the, the communities are. And then you start building districts from there, grouping together neighborhoods uh, and communities that have something in common, rather than kind of starting from the opposite direction and saying, well, what types of people do I have to cram into this district over here, no matter how different their circumstances might, might be, in order to save my job or in order to ensure that my party gets, gets to keep power? You go back to those first principles and you draw districts based on what it is that these districts are supposed to be and the role that they are supposed to play in our political system. Now, Nick, I had given gerrymandering a lot of thought. And in the few minutes we have left, I'm going to share with you my solution so you can critique it. I abhor a district being drafted so that a representative can pick their voters, obviously, or a member of a party can pick which party his voters are in. That's more specific. And I also happen to abhor the uh, process in the House of Representatives of earmarking, of bringing money back to the district, bringing home the pork uh, to get reelected, putting an airport or a, or a road, whatever. Given those principles, my system would be you do not draw districts on a map. They do not have any geographic identity, but rather you take the state, you decide how many voters are to be in each district. And let's say it's 400,000 in California. You then, and you decide California has 55 districts. You then randomly throughout the state, take every voter scattered throughout the state and randomly assign them to a district. So in effect, there is no place. It's just an arbitrary 400,000 people who have only one thing in common. The computer put them in the same district. Indeed, the party and anybody who wants to run for office can run in any district because there's no in. You just pick a district. I'm going to run as a Democratic candidate in the 53rd district, which really means 50. 400,000 randomly selected voters. That would be my goal. No gerrymandering. And I say now, Nick, to you as a political scientist, if you were running for office in the 53rd district in California, and all you knew was there were 400,000 randomly selected people scattered throughout the state, how would you organize your campaign? What would be your campaign issue. You couldn't pander. You couldn't say how you feel about abortion because you don't know if you're in a, if you're in a religious district, not religious district. In fact, there is no in. The only way to run for office is to say who you are, what you stand for, and hope 50.1% of the people in your district like it. And that would bring all elections into the middle. No more. You couldn't. Primaries don't matter. Nothing matters except you got to appeal to a majority of the voters without even knowing who they are. Therefore, you just present yourself stark naked. This is who I am. Please elect me. So 
So here's my reaction to... But you have five your... minutes, but don't take the whole five minutes. Okay. It probably won't take you that long to finish laughing. So just your thoughts as a political scientist, and then I'll never say this in public again. So I think that there are both good things and perhaps downsides to your idea here. The good we thing only are... have time for the good things, Nick. We only... <laughs> the good thing is that it is incredibly fair right because because it's random there's no way to and manipulate pure. it and pure there's no way to manipulate things there's no way to to put your thumbs on the scale i will say that um there are likely to be some logistical challenges when you're randomly assigning 400,000 people to a district do they still vote in their local polling places um maybe you have some kind of online voting system uh, that 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 works with with that kind of thing. I think my main issue with it is that when you are uh, when you're assigning those districts at random, let's say using your hypothetical of of California, uh, while you may not know precisely who has ended up in your randomly selected district, you can be pretty sure in California that any randomly selected district of 400,000 people is likely to have far more Democrats in it than Republicans. So if I'm a candidate running in that district, I figure the odds are in my favor if I run a campaign that appeals more to Democrats than Republicans, because it's more likely than not that the district I ended up drawing by random is one that has a majority of Democrats in it. But you use more likely than not. Today, it's absolutely true. If you're a Democrat, you will win. So therefore, I've, I've removed automatic to, to more likely than not, which means a, a bad Democrat would, a bad Democratic candidate would lose to a good Republican candidate under my system. But, uh, and as you say, logistical issues, Nick, I'm an important guy. I leave that stuff to my staff. Um, I don't know where they're going to vote or how. I don't sully my hands with those low-level problems. So, Nick, we have a couple of minutes left. The prospects for the future, are we likely to continue to suffer under the, your metaphor of earlier, under the thumb on the scale of gerrymandering? Is there reason for hope? Uh, And what do we have to look forward to in the next five years, we'll say. Well, I tried not to make the the conclusion of this book too pessimistic because while a lot of things are are bad right now when it comes to gerrymandering, I do think that there is hope uh, for the future. And that hope comes from the fact that every time you give the people the opportunity to vote on this question, red states, blue states, swing states, they decide that they want to get rid of gerrymandering, whatever the proposed solution might be. In the last few years, we've had um, redistricting reform measures that have passed in places like New York, uh, in Michigan, uh, and in Utah. Red states, California, blue states, states. California has a redistricting commission as well. Right, exactly. California. Uh, and I like the California model because it's a citizens commission. And uh, you're a fan of random selection. The actual members of the commission are selected through this application process. And then there's a random component to that selection. So it's impossible the, the, to name it. Random selection doesn't work because I applied and they rejected me. <laughs> But that's kind of the silver lining that I see in this whole debate, that momentum seems to be picking up. Congress has debated legislation to uh, require independent commissions for redistricting in U.S. House of Representatives elections. And more and more states have adopted some form of a redistricting commission or some kind of uh, procedure that tries to constrain the worst impulses of politicians who are uh, conducting this process. So my hope is that the people are much wiser on this subject than the politicians. And Nick, we you discuss in great detail and a beautiful discussion of the role or the absence of the role of the courts. The courts have not been especially effective. They've created a confusing uh, 
series of cases that are a bit contradictory. Um, a lot of well-known judges have weighed in over the decades, but the Supreme Court tends to avoid what are called political questions. They don't like to wade into the political process, deferring to the political process itself, the ballot box, and the electoral process. So they haven't been especially true, uh, especially helpful, and they're also not helped by the fact that the Constitution gives very little guidance to the minutia of government, which is how you draw election districts. So we have kind of a blank slate and the Supreme Court doesn't have ultimate guidance. So if we're going to find help, as Nick says, the help is going to come from voters, either from um, politicians who can put political party below good government, lots of luck, or from citizens using perhaps the uh, proposition process or the like, or moral suasion to cause there to be a bottom-up change in the system of, of district drawings that we have now. But right now, drawing of districts has a profound effect upon the composition of the, the lower house, usually because the Senate is statewide, uh, although Senate, state Senates are by district as well. So the help has to come from us, those, by us, I mean those people who had the good, the wisdom to listen to my conversation with Nick. I spent the last hour speaking with Nick Seabrook. Nick has written one person, one, one vote, um, a history, a discussion, and a prognosis for the evil of gerrymandering or if you will, gerrymandering. Nick, thank you so much for your time. Good luck with your book, which has just been published. Two, I might add, very wonderful reviews, especially a very recent review in the New Yorker magazine. Congratulations for that. Nick, thank you so much, and thank you to my friends out there for giving us generously an hour of your time. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.